Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's financial management strategy? How is DHS working to modernize its financial management systems? And how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted the finances and budget of DHS? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Troy Edgar, Chief Financial Officer at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Troy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Oh, thank you. Good to be here. So before we delve into, I like to set up a context around the mission of your organization, and in particular, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Office of Chief Financial Officer. What is the mission in history? Well, the mission of the Chief Financial Officer is to make sure that we have the right resources at the right place at the right time. You know, Homeland Security being a fairly new organization uh, found in 2003, the CFO Act and being a CFO agency within the uh, uh, federal government, a pretty significant part of really trying to shape the, the process and controls that uh, really govern, uh, that really kind of make sure that the policies that are out there to be uh, implemented that are actually following the law and how to allocate the resources to them. Mm-hmm. So when you, could you give us a sense, and I understand just a high level sense of, of the organization, the department, you know, how is it organized on some level, the size of its budget, which is I think in your sweet spot, and just the geographical footprint, number of employees? So uh, Homeland Security is currently about 253,000 people, significant uh, amount of folks. Um, Organized around 22 components, nine of them operational. So operational components, uh, just uh, so to kind of differentiate, would be like uh, the Secret Service, uh, TSA, CBP, et cetera, ICE, Border Patrol. And then within the different uh, components, I would say that there's a, a couple different missions. You know, there's that front line, and then there's kind of the mission support side. So CFO fits kind of in that portfolio of mission support. And one way, especially now in the current age of uh, what's going on uh, in the nation, is that yeah, really kind of look at uh, Homeland Security is really the nation's largest police force. So I was wondering, what's a day in a life, or what's your role and responsibility as a CFO, the Chief Financial Officer at DHS? Uh, you know, some a very, uh, very exciting job. Um, it's a combination of maintaining a train schedule, so that's the mundane part, uh, making sure that uh, the compliance with uh, all the significant laws and statutes and timelines and uh, requirements for reporting, et cetera, are met. But um, probably the CFO role that I think is the most exciting part of it is the strategic advisory role. What you really end up becoming is somebody that, uh, you know, a lot of the folks are there implementing policies across that organization. What ends up being the biggest issue is how do you implement that? And when you start doing that, you got to make sure that um, you're making use of the resources, how it's supposed to be appropriated, and legally what the use of the resources are. And so a lot of times the issue isn't, uh, hey, we want to do something, and, and, and functionally, how do we do it? Because the component leaders figure out that. It's the details of, okay, now how do we get all the resources if we're going to use resources across different components? Each one of them are funded differently, have different responsibilities. So you end up uh, having to kind of make sure that everybody's um, 
focused and doing the right things, but uh, legally. Yeah. So, you know, with that kind of a responsibility, I was wondering, what would you say are some of your top challenges that you face in your current role, and how have you sought to address those challenges? Yeah. Um, you know what? Uh, I think some of the biggest challenges are the, the, the breadth and scope of how big DHS is. Um, you know, I tell people when we were going through the beginning of COVID, and you start to have an effect of you know people whether they're going to telework um, and how you're going to adjust work schedules, pay, et cetera, stuff like that. As you're going through that, you realize that the thing that you say, if you're sloppy or too rushed, affects 253,000 people, and you multiply that number of people by one dollar, it's a lot of money. Multiply it by hundreds, it's millions, et cetera. You know, you really need to be really thought through. But on kind of the reverse side of that is if you are so concerned, you'll be paralyzed. So you've got to be careful to uh, get enough information to make the right decisions. And then something that I've found uh, is that especially in the management directorate, where the real folks that are the business underbelly of, of DHS I'm surrounded by unbelievable colleagues. Um, you know, I know you've had uh, the chief procurement officer, Soraya Creon, the uh, Chico or the head uh, chief HR uh, person. You just realize that you've got an unbelievable amount of, of talent around you. And then within the undersecretary, our deputy undersecretary, Alice, really great leader, I should say. And just kind of you, you get a team effect. So we all work together. And I think it just breaks down the walls. That's great. So, you know, along with the challenges that you mentioned, and, and some of the opportunities that you're taking. You know, what has surprised you since taking on this current role? So to get into my job, you have to go through Senate confirmation. You know, I come from the corporate background. So, you know, I was a CFO uh, outside in uh, McDonnell, Douglas, and Boeing, and then uh, went into PricewaterhouseCoopers. I know you have a very similar background. And then, uh, yeah, I've done a lot of very large uh, mergers and acquisitions. Uh, when I was with uh, Boeing, we did McDonnell Douglas. When I went to Pricewaterhouse, we did Coopers, and then we did IBM. But at that point, you know, when I was in consulting, I really learned how to get into very large organizations and really quickly get up to speed. But not only just the processes, the systems, but the people and how to kind of integrate in and to be effective. The way I look at it, too, being a, uh, a person that uh, is part of the administration, but also working with really good career people, I kind of deem success as being you couldn't tell the difference in my group specifically between who's political and who is career. Because I think if you have the mutual respect and being able to go through, and what I found is that um, what I was watching going through Senate confirmation was a book evaluation of what Homeland was. I would meet senators, I would meet folks, and I would get a perception. And when I actually was brought in and confirmed, I was just really impressed that um, in, a, in a very positive way, perception did not equal reality. So one of the reasons I'm doing your show is I one of my big focuses as CFO is I really want to get the message out to people outside of DHS and quite honestly outside the Beltway into the more of the corporate and other parts of America that this organization, like many in the federal government, have unbelievably dedicated people. If you are a corporate restructuring guy like me, you will see that there's a tremendous amount of similarities. The thing that they're not doing good in the federal government is talking about it. The media really dominates the policy issues. They don't take advantage of the opportunities of some of the tremendous amount of work that gets done really on behalf of the American taxpayer and uh, being able to save literally billions of dollars. Absolutely. That's a great point. You know, given your background, both in the services, service and in, in elected politics. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about all your corporate background. 
how do you lead and what are the characteristics in your mind of an effective leader? And perhaps you could share with us some of your leadership principles. You know, it, it's kind of uh, a couple different things. I think that, you know, a little bit of the visionary and uh, being a coach and a servant leader, I think, has really been a big part of my uh, approach is that, you know, First of all, being in the military, then going and being a CFO at a Fortune 500 company in a division, you know, you you are the person that's kind of in the seat. Then, you know, doing 20 years uh, really helping CFOs, CEOs do restructuring, you're kind of in the co-pilot seat, but you don't necessarily have to live with the consequences. You're in two to three years and you're out, um, or your company is. But I think that being able to have a perspective of what it means to be sitting in the seat, what it means to be the best advisor you could ever be, but really not having to deal with, you know, looking people in the eye and saying, hey, look, this is going to be a challenge and I've got, you know, I've got real lives I'm affecting. And then I think just uh, listening. Um, yeah, like I said, I, w- one of the most important things to me is to have an organization where people feel comfortable, like I am who I am. I, I don't try to be anybody else. I don't want people to have facades. Um, I think that what we need to do is we go through and, um, and I think if you lead like that, I think people say, hey, this guy's down to earth and um, he's somebody that I can follow. But on the reverse side, accountability is really important. So you know, one of the companies I had for about 15 years with my brother, people would always ask, how could you be in business with uh, your brother? And it's like my brother I was one of my best business partners because we would have great times, but when it got serious, he knew I was serious. And that's how I think our organization is. I think that I, what I love about DHS is that everybody has a really good demeanor as far as uh, kind of a family of DHS, but also um, when you've got to get serious, as long as you're respectful uh, to the way you treat people and you're you know, direct to the point of not to be disrespectful, um, I think it's very much appreciated in the culture at DHS, and um, it's, um, it's been just a really great experience there. What is DHS's financial management strategy? I will ask its chief financial officer, Troy Edgar, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Troy Edgar, chief financial officer at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. So, Troy, would you outline for me the uh, Department of Homeland Security's financial management strategy? I've broken my goals up, uh, strategic goals, into kind of two categories. Um, my, um, you know, most people when they take the, think of strategic, they think the next three to five years. But you know, it's kind of a unique situation when you you come in kind of midterm and near the end of a term, you you've got to try to think about if you get too lofty, that then you could be wasting time if you're not there to kind of follow it through. Um, so probably, like I said, the, the, for me, the short term was that uh, right away wanted to make sure that um, I could focus on four things between now and the end of the term to, that, uh, that I can look at, agree to meet with all the directors and the leadership within CFO and look at and evaluate their goals, what they had signed up to a year ago in this current year and say, okay, hey, what can we finish together that, that, so I don't throw you guys off on priorities that you're focused on, and maybe some of the things you're doing will be behind some of my goals. And together, you know, we can go together. And then through this process, I'll get to know them better. I'll get to see the strengths and weaknesses of each leader. 
all get to evaluate the ability of their their organization, how they interact with different organizations. And so through that, I established four goals, and this would have been in the short term between now and the end of the year. I'll talk about those in a moment. And then the longer term, the you know, the, I'll call this the next four years. Um, those definitely would be in that, that high category of strategy. And a lot of that has to do with uh, really trying to figure out how to help DHS from a perspective of um, their lines of business and maximizing kind of cross-component uh, participation and activities. You know, the CFO job, I think there's a tremendous ability to help influence when you kind of get multiple reporting responsibilities as a CFO. Uh, one part is you report to the Undersecretary of Management which is the business lead. But through the CFO Act, which is a law, you actually directly report to the secretary and the deputy. So it's a fine balance because uh, 95% of my job is due to the success of working with the undersecretary, the lines of business, and the components. Uh, but that 5% is with the most important people in the organization, the secretary and deputy. And so you've got to be their consigliator, but not get too far ahead of components or your undersecretary. And so those goals and strategy are things that I really look at more of at the enterprise level. So, um, for example, you look at uh, what has happened through, again, through the COVID and some of the things that have followed in after that through, like, civil unrest, uh, where we've had to kind of pull together. And I always like to try to take advantage of really thoughtful strategy and a little bit of the real-time, day-to-day, good and bad, sometimes chaos that happens. And so, for example, civil unrest uh, really forced the organization uh, to look at itself like a unified police force and figure out how do we pool police resources, not CBP, ICE, Secret Service, but how we pool our police resources to missions the secretary feels you know, are important and really kind of act as if we have $90 billion worth of resources to be able to put to where the priorities are. So I want to, over the next four years, really focus on looking at that. I also look at the tremendous amount of money that came into the department through the CARES Act or the um, through uh, the COVID supplemental relief through Congress is that um, I think it's been the right thing for the nation. But I think that my job becomes 10 times more important because from here forward, there's not going to be that level of spending. And from here forward, I think that the uh, taxpayers are going to require and the administration is going to require us to live within our means and potentially look for even more areas of opportunity to do more with less or at least the same. So, um, you know, again, I think uh, looking at those two types of activities, um, the cross-line cooperation at DHS and really just trying to uh, maximize a cost and um, resource profile that will be sustainable to maintain our mission is going to be our our big uh, function points for the next couple of years. I was wondering if you wanted to give us an overview of the four strategic goals for you. Sure. So uh, within the first goal uh, was really to focus on the audit, uh, the, the GAO high risk list, um, looking at the material weaknesses, try to get all of that uh, issues uh, downgraded. So pretty much in the audit side, that would have been the first area. Second area was then FSM or the financial systems modernization. Talk a little bit about uh, kind of um, having two successes coming up here that uh, really will put an exclamation point on a lot of really good work and then rebranding it going forward. Third area was to focus on um, basically the relationship of the CFO to the front office, uh, to you know the budgets function that deals with the four corners, and within Homeland Security, the legislative offices. That one of the 
points that I had heard coming through the confirmation process was that CFO kind of has a very unique uh, situation, is it? Um, and if you look at issues going on right now with the CFO Act, uh, potentially uh, looking at, uh, you know, they're looking at uh, modernizing or redoing that is one of the functions is that Homeland has is that the within CFO shop budgets actually reports to the finance organization. And within the budget group, they basically are the ones that are responsible to integrating the relationship with the four corners of appropriation. So they are kind of, quote, the legislative affairs group for Homeland Security when it comes to the that side of legislation, which would be appropriations. Then, But within Homeland, we've got legislative affairs uh, with um, Assistant Secretary Spivey, who is doing a great job at OLA. Uh, but I think what they looked at there is it seemed like ledge affairs um, within the big DHS and ledge affairs within budget weren't necessarily always together. And um, yet within CFO shop, not having a confirmed CFO in there um, from the administration side, it, you know, there was a lot of stuff that uh, there wasn't sure what was going on all the time. And, you know, because DHS, you know, I, just looking in the press, anybody could see, um, but kind of a, a lot of controversial stuff going on is that uh, I think that uh, we just want to make sure that there was an alignment between one legislative voice to the Hill, but that also called dissonance or caused dissonance to the front office because uh, if you can imagine if you're the secretary, you know, you get a ledge report, has it been coordinated? Is this, you know, so, you know, was one voice louder than the other? Or do Have we normalized, you know, the guidance? And so, you know, one of you know, my third strategic goal was to try to uh, really work hard to build a great relationship with OLA, build a great relationship with the budget director within my shop, make sure we're all working together. Also on the OMB side from the administration, which we have a lot of coordination with, they also have an OLA relationship at OMB and a budget CFO. So we, um, you know, all of us are kind of really trying to work hard to be able to provide the best service to the secretary, the deputy secretary, and then, you know, in the end to the taxpayers that we have a clear voice on so much money that goes through that organization and uh, making sure that we're setting the right priorities with the, uh, with the Hill. My last item is uh, around modernization for the CFO shop and the communication. And like I said, this interview would, would fit into that, which is, uh, you know, one of it is harvesting a lot of the stuff that's taken place within Homeland Security, also setting a vision on how do we build on the infrastructure that we've now put in place through FSM and through a lot of this discipline and process stuff, and uh, kind of looking at that, another project in there, that which we'll end up talking about is uh, examples of that harvesting is, you know, we've done a recent project that really hasn't gained that much focus yet, which is called the Unified View of Investments or UVI. And, um, you know, this is a project that basically, let's say two or three years ago, and you were a project or a program manager, and you had a program, let's say you're building ships for the Coast Guard, you might have to go to five or six different groups to get reports to figure out what's going on with that ship, what earned value on what's the progress on this cost and schedule. You might have to go to CFO to find out how much money's been spent. You might have to go to the PARM group in the public and for the program management side and see, well, you know, what are the metrics and where are they at in the program life cycle? Um, and so what this UVI project had done would be just to pull all that information into kind of a big data platform uh, so that you can have a one-stop shop. And then they took it to the next level and reports, created reports that are these one-pagers. So what would normally take two to three weeks to create all this data for these monthly 
program ESC reviews or executive steering committee evaluations, they can pull in minutes in real time based on how fast the data has been architected into the tool. So that was one of the items that had been created within the um, cost analysis division within CFO. And I saw that and I had already been, because I'm a uh, acquisition review board member, I, I, I go to a lot of these meetings and I still hadn't seen a lot of these tools being used. So even within DHS, there wasn't a, a wide knowledge that this thing had been done. So part of my thing is also starting to promote these best practices out. And so just even you know within the last week or two, um, I'm out talking to all the different lines of business and bringing that group with me, setting up workshops. And we just had another 100 people uh, join into that just this last week, and they all become users of that. And you know, and you think 100 isn't a whole lot when you're talking 253,000 people, but the people that do that type of work is pretty significant. Mm, those are your goals. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I was wondering, as I was thinking about it, the federal community, CFO Act agencies, what have you, in the financial management area are dealing with certain challenges. And you kind of alluded to it. The, the, the pie is going to get a little tighter after the after the supplementals. And um, I was just wondering, are there any other key financial management challenges, budget challenges, that are specifically unique to DHS? Uh, yeah, I mean, a couple more that got exposed through COVID would be um, our fee-based organizations. So uh, specifically, uh, all USCIS has been in the news lately. Um, you know, it's our... Uh, citizenship and immigration group. And the challenge with them is that they, about 98% of their business is funded through fees. And um, the, the, the challenge they had is uh, about March of 20, they ended up, uh, you know, because of the stop on uh, travel, the stop on a lot of things, the, the, their business stopped. And uh, that fee hit, um, if you took that one month and you extrapolated it out, they were basically on a very short path to having to do pretty significant furloughs. And what I realized uh, coming into that situation, um, and uh, and I'm sure other fee-based organizations in the federal government have had to deal with this, but um, you know, I'm used to being a profit and loss person, you know, and and if you have an ability to save cost, you save it, you don't try to spend the budget up so that you have an, you know, the, the, the indicator that you should have that same level of budget for next year. So that's a principle that doesn't come easy to me to kind of understand. When you have a fee-based organization, there's two levers that they have. And I think that this would be for any organization. You have the fees that come in to sustain cost, and then you have carryover amounts that basically are used on a year-to-year basis, your savings account. So you get your checking and your savings. What ended up happening with CIS is that they had had many years with a lot of money in their savings account, like billions. And so when they started having problems with fees, they basically didn't cover costs that savings accounts started getting drawn down super fast. Uh, and that's what scared everybody. But then what I realized when I got in there is that the tools that they used to manage that business were based on appropriation business, not fees. And appropriations come at a year basis. They're reprogrammed in the middle of the year, and you kind of go through a process that's a little bit more predictable. 
Um, they didn't have a um, tight relationship with the appropriations committees. A lot, a big part of my job is to deal with the four corners of uh, budgets. So on the ranking in the chairs for both the House and the Senate when it comes to appropriated funds. So uh, our partners in the and the appropriations committees were kind of going, "Hey Troy, you know, how come you guys haven't been transparent with what's going on with fees?" And uh, you know what we realized is that you know they only do a little bit of appropriations for USCIS, like less than 2%. So there hadn't been really a lot of foundation for what we needed to talk about with fees. So right away, what I've done is established a, a monthly fee tracker, almost like what you would do in industry for leading economic indicators. Like uh, if you look at the ADP reports on payroll before you get to unemployment numbers. And, uh, and so that fees, what I've done is I've taken the nine most important fees across four organizations at DHS that really depend on them. And we track them both year to date and trends. And we put it out every month to the secretary, deputy secretary, and the component leads. Um, and that gives us and the hill to make sure that we can get, predict these things in the future. And then I've also put them on monthly cash flow statements, which everybody was like, what are we doing cash flow statements for? And it's like, look, uh, you can't tell me where you're going to be in a quarter. You may go into a negative balance during a month way before the quarter. So it's been a good experience. And um, so th th those are, that's probably one thing is the fee-based organizations, I think has been uh, one of the areas that's um, been able to apply some of my uh, corporate b background and uh, in, uh, in the public side um, to something here. Just wondering if I can follow up on that. How, how introducing the cash flow statement, how much of a culture shock was that? I'm just, just wondering. Um, so it, it uh, that example specifically was kind of interesting because, uh, like I told you, in this in my shop, in the CFO shop within headquarters, um, I've got some of the smartest people, and so you know I'm laying this out, and then within CIS, they have a CFO over there who is very sharp, super smart people, but I'm laying it out, and it's like I was speaking French to them, and. Um, and you know, and I'm kind of laying out. Hey, I need it on a one page. I need it by month. Well, and then they had like a thousand different things of why they couldn't do it by month, or what about this? It's like, no, you got to keep it to one page because the Hill and some of our senior executives need to be able to see it at one page. If it's our 30, 40 page monthly execution report, no one can look at that except staff people in Congress. And so. Um, so what ends up happening at two or three in the morning one night, I just have to go and whiteboard it in my office by myself, construct a template of what I'm looking for, send it to them, and like, now you just fill this in. And and then if you have problems with this, tell me and I'll tell you how to map it in. So it's like roll up sleeve and start to go to it. And um, once I've done it once, though, that started being, and so right now we're dealing with a very similar situation in CBP. And the team's like, we're going, you know, they know what to do now. We so we go into a whiteboard together, and we all sit back and uh, and. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, it, it's a nice lead into the next question, which is around your efforts uh, to uh, modernize the financial system. And I'd like for you to tell us a little bit more about the progress to date, and you know what is going on with the financial systems modernization, or folks know it as FSM, I believe. So, what's going on there? So, um, so this is another one of those things of uh, perception versus reality. 
So uh, going through Senate confirmation, everybody's like, God, there's this bad project going on in, uh, you know, in DHS called FSM. And so, you know, I did what anybody does on the outside. I started reading the congressional reports. I read all the audit stuff that had been done on it. And, you know, and the hard part about it is it was a story that started 13 years ago. And so when you read that story and you're reading the saga of it till modern day, on the outside, the perception's bad. Uh, the, the message I'd want to get across to the listeners and to people outside of DHS is that um, about two years ago, the current leadership of uh, DHS and w really driven by kind of what they call the, the three groups of the chief procurement officer, the chief information officer, and the office of the CFO got together with its biggest vendors and um, said, look, we're doing this different now. Um, we Early on, they had been plagued with being able to have to, or not being able, they were forced to use more of a federal shared services model and uh, with the Department of uh, Interior. And, you know, if you read the history, you just realize that this was um, just a calamity of errors. That project had started and stopped. And I think what ended up happening, DHS really kind of stood up and said, look, we're taking control of this ourselves. They established a joint program office centrally to basically get control back into the DHS headquarters. The three CXOs that I mentioned got together and said, hey, look, we're going to make decisions together. And, you know, the procurement people can execute on uh, with contracts. Uh, the CIO technically could help map this in. And on the process side, the CFO was there. Um, and they just started doing unbelievable work. And so uh, what they were able to do is turn that around. Uh, a year later, they went live with uh, one of our smaller divisions, uh, CWMD. Um, um, this uh, in the quarter of uh, third, uh, I guess uh, coming up here in the fall, they're going to be going live with TSA, uh, and and probably uh, uh, a year after that will be Coast Guard. So um, what they've been able to do now is to get this financial services uh, project to very successful uh, completion. One thing though that I, I did want to talk about with FSM is that um, it is one of my um, short-term strategy goals, is um, I'm very focused on really bolstering uh, the FSM project, but um, almost in kind of a way uh, memorializing it. Um, once we get done with the Coast Guard, what I've done is come in, I've taken a look at that. After that, we have ICE component uh, that needs to go through, and a lot of people that use that shared services model. We've got FEMA, which has got a tremendous amount of money going through it right now. Um, what I would like to do is to take the FSM project claim victory after the Coast Guard, uh, basically allow the, all of the federal people that have been working on this, that it's been almost an, arbit uh, an albatross across their neck for um, their involvement on it because it has a bad perception when you kind of go outside of DHS. It's because people don't see the reality of the last two years. So once we go live in, with the Coast Guard in two years, then what we're going to do is kind of take this thing, rebrand it, get it away from calling it FSM, and then we're going to stay focused on uh, FEMA, the ICE components, et cetera. Um, we're also going to take the spending profile, the way it's set up as a large program that uh, meets certain criteria because it's so bunched together that it gets a lot of exposure and, and focus. Um, so, and a big part of that is because even the post-production support continues to stay a part of it. So when you start seeing how much it costs, you've got to realize they're actually doing post-production. In the corporate world, you take a large system like this uh, at some of the largest Fortune 500, but once they are alive, 
a quarter later, a year later at longest, then they're kind of migrated to a more affordable uh, way of supporting those very expensive systems. And then at that point, sometimes uh, it's done internally, sometimes it's done outside, and it becomes a much more affordable way. Um, so I'm going to then take that cost and, and move it back into, you know, probably a group like CIO or something. So the CIO and I are talking about that. So the support would become more of just a normal operation and not a large program that just continues to get some, some press that isn't always favorable. Yeah, I was wondering, you, 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 you've kind of come on board and, you know, are there any other best practices or lessons learned that you would like to share around the financial systems modernization effort? Um, your vision is perfect in terms of just rebranding it once you get it in there because it, it just becomes, as you said, an albatross and and it, it kind of reifies itself because it becomes a perception kind of defines reality in a lot of ways. So I was just wondering, both from an IT perspective or change management perspective and getting the workforce involved, what are some of the things you, you've come across that have been really good practices or successes? Well, um, you know, when we talk about the workforce, we talk about labor. When you talk about, um, you know, uh, DHS is in a, um, a fight of the life uh, for the best talent out there. You know, you can look at unemployment through COVID and go, maybe not. But the reality is unemployment uh, and employment in general is below 3%, and it will get back there fairly soon. Um, the top talent has choices to where they want to work. And so I, I do think that part of this rebranding thing for me strategically is um, – when I see these people that are doing a significant amount of people that are doing these types of modernization projects and other technology upgrades across DHS, we need to be able to kind of show people the great work that is happening and to make it something that's on their resume that they're proud of and to make it something that people outside of DHS would want to join and become a part of. Um, so that when you are competing in the talent pool that, um, that you know, you're actually out there and being able to to, to not only be competitive because it is a great place to work, but it's also it's got the best people. Um, other things that I see as like um, best practice is that once this first part of this financial systems modernization is put in, what has happened that I'm trying to claim ground on that isn't being talked about is through this they have really modernize their business processes. They went through from, you know, even though they were only able to get these small businesses and now TSA and Coast Guard on, they've basically done total B business process reengineering across on the financials. Through that, the last seven years, DHS has had seven consecutive clean audit opinions. They're the only group, uh, the only federal government uh, group that has been able to kind of come in through the CFO Act and do that. So we have um, kind of uh, internal audit and external auditors coming in. And I think that uh, through that process, what will end up happening is now we have an infrastructure, both process-wise and technology-wise, that now the things that I used to do to get to Fortune 500 companies is now you start building on them. They're putting reporting tools on them called, you know, like Tableau and all these different types of reporting tools. They're putting big data uh, repositories on the side and doing these leverage projects. So the fourth goal of one of my goals that are out there is to take advantage and now harvest all of this work and talk about it publicly to tell people that there is significantly advanced activity going on within DHS that rivals a lot of Fortune 500 that is not being talked about. And I, unfortunately, the folks that are in DHS that are doing it have just 
been so battle weary that they're like, it's, hey, it's just a journey, it's a process. And it's like, no, you don't realize the relative position that you guys are in. And um, things that we're looking at right now, which I'm very excited about is like RPA or robotic process automation is that once you've got a foundation in place, then you can start using that. The only difference is in corporate world, we might've been doing it for headcount reduction. In the government space, what we're trying to do is to take our talent pool and move them up from processing transactions to actually being more analytical and get more out of them. And this goes back to my strategy for the next four years is how do we do more with less or, you know, or the same amount of money that we're going to get is, well, you got to get your workforce that's in to a new level. And so this process that I'm putting in place now, and I've got an initiative going across all the components is to harvest all the RPA potential activity because it started, pull it up into a center of excellence into the headquarters, and then really try to look at how we put together these business cases uh, that we can actually, because I want to quantify it. In the corporate world, you always go through benefits realization, and then you, you know, if you're a corporation, you care about, you know, how you're returning earnings per share as you talk about the successes, and I really want us to start talking about those. Yeah, sometimes uh, you see in some sort of departments or even agencies, bureaus, that they get so focused into the weeds that they don't actually take a, a, a you know step back and tell, hey, we're really achieving some stuff here. And you mentioned one achievement, and you already talked about it, but I did want to get a touch on it again because, you know, you know, getting that clean audit opinion is pretty significant. So I was wondering if you if you have anything more to elaborate on that, and then uh, on the other side of that. What is being done or what's the strategy to deal with some of the material weaknesses that have been identified around financial reporting and IT controls? Yeah, you know what I'd, I'd like to do is kind of talk about them together. Is so they, they um, you know, they clean audit and the audit in general, really, if, if you look at the journey of DHS 2003, um, we didn't get too far out of the chute and the GAO stepped in and said, hey, we're going to put you on the GAO high risk list. And, you know, no one probably ever wants to be on that. Um, I've had the opportunity of talking with the uh, Comptroller General, Gene Dodaro, uh, great guy. And he kind of gave me his history perspective of this, because um, that's another thing. When I first got in, I just, I really, since I'm not an insider, I went and met with him. I met with the IG. I, I went and met with the previous CFOs of Homeland Security. I went and met with the undersecretaries, Elaine Duke, Claire, all of those, because I really wanted to find, um, I don't want to relive and try to create my own path that's already been created. Um, so I really wanted a historical perspective. And that item, the uh, high-risk audit list, that's number one on the strategy, uh, things that I want to try and get on top of. But uh, the clean audit opinion shows that, um, you know, and I'm not, I'm sure there's a lot of CFOs of other departments that aren't going to be super happy hearing this, but I, I think that if you look at it as a, as a business case, through that activity, um, it forced discipline and process into an organization that realized they couldn't get their stuff together system-wise. I mean, FSM, the story we just told is proof, but what it did do is they had to find a way. So they have this thing called compensating controls. And so they go, oh, we'll have to fix it with a process change. We won't be able to do it perfectly. And uh, through that, they started hiring really good um, FM people that know audit and, um, and our, our risk management group. And through that process, I think really almost over exceeded the number of years that DHS has been in existence by maturing processes over and above. 
you know, if you look at that high risk list, it was kind of put out there because the GAO really had no faith in the financials of these large, uh, you know, cabinet-based organizations. And so what's happened with DHS is, you know, we are now in 2010, they go, hey, we were a little tough on you in 2003. So, was, and again, I was looking at this, I noticed that in 2010, they reset it and they said, okay, hey, look, we'll help focus you. We'll move you from all of these issues to, uh, we'll, we'll take it down to 30 things that you need to focus on. And a lot of it having to do with really kind of uh, strengthening management's function within DHS and CFO office taking on a brunt of that. And then through that process, we just continue to kind of will down. So uh, we have, uh, we're down to our last seven items. Six of them are financial reporting issues uh, that have to do with, uh, you know, material weaknesses in our financial reporting and IT controls. And we're going through this. Uh, now the challenge we have with this, and I've been one of the things that I met with the uh, Comptroller General and the GAO group is how do we get off of this thing? Because I would like that to be a part of my legacy is to be the guy that did that. I had met with uh, Deputy Secretary David Norquist, but he was the previous um, CFO of Homeland Security. And he, I said, you know, David, how do I get off the GAO high risk? And uh, he kind of looked at me and said, you know, Troy, um, one, you know, you may never get off of that um, because, you know, you're a huge organization and you've got, a, you know, uh, you've got a lot of things going on. FEMA, for example, you get a lot of money goes on there. There's just, a, there's always area for opportunity. You should just really be trying to kind of go through and see, hey, how can I get the most of it? You know, he definitely was encouraging to try and get off of it. There's no doubt about it. And if you look at his legacy, uh, again, I'm a, I'm a business case guy. So I go back. I think that a lot of the stuff that where we're at today has happened during his tenure 2008 time period where he kind of put him on a path, 10 GAO revisits it. And now uh, currently we're actually going to try and further downscope here, but um, yeah, it's quite a journey. What does the future hold for financial management and accountability within the U.S. Department of Homeland Security? I will ask its chief financial officer, Troy Edgar, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Troy Edgar, Chief Financial Officer at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, I was wondering, we, we, we did talk in the previous segment a little bit about COVID and its impact on the department, specifically its financial impact on fees, uh, you know, components that take fees and rely on fees. I was wondering, what else, uh, what else has uh, COVID and the pandemic response done to the operations of, of the department? Yeah, um, so... You know, the COVID has been very tough on people within our workforce. And so first and foremost, I just want to have compassion for the folks that have had to kind of go through that. Um, as a finance person, though, uh, you look at this and I, I firmly believe that I think the COVID um, issue has put um, something on the table that really had not been there before, which is this teleworking capability. And um, you know, if you look at the statistics of what's going on across DHS, again, a very big group, uh, if you look at the mission support people, not the, not the people that you see at the TSA, at the front desk, when you're at the airport, at the border with the Border Patrol or ICE, um, but if you see the mission support people, over 90% of those folks work remote and have worked remote since March. You know, there's a whole different segment we can do on uh, on what uh, ends up happening and how did you get to that. But the, the the business takeaway from that is that 
we immediately all the government right size their IT infrastructure to be able to handle that many people working remote. Uh, remote became a way of doing business. Um, you know, five to eight years ago in the corporate world, they kind of tried this already. And um, so it was, it's been interesting for me because I lived through that and then it kind of came back and people wanted to come back in the office. And, you know, so impacts on people's career. Um, you know, if you got people that are charging a career, sometimes it's good to be where the action's at because you get a lot of different opportunities. But some people really like the balance of working remote. So now the federal government's got options. And they, you know, and they're keeping a very big open mind. And um, so now you look at the big, big picture, GSA, which is not Homeland Security. It's uh, for all the General Services Administration that owns all this real estate uh, within Homeland Security, within uh, management. And I'm working with uh, them from CFO as we have a, a what we call an NCR consolidation approach, uh, just the national capital region. And so there's an opportunity that was already in motion to get out of commercial real estate, get into the federal footprint, get into our headquarters at St. Elizabeth. Well, think about the significant impact if 90% of the people in these offices can now work remote and you don't trust it and take that to the bank, but you look at provisioning for what do I provision in new buildings? If people only want to come in a couple days a week, like we did in the corporate side, you just go towards hoteling. So the provisional footprint that needs to be done out there through basically the group within Homeland Security, the chief readiness officers that are out there, um, he, he's been looking at the provisioning of what do we need in office spaces. And I think um, it's a tremendous opportunity, again, in that category of we'll have to do this the, the more with the same or less, um, how we will be able to cut costs is through the consolidation of our commercial real estate and potentially our future footprint, um, which I think is going to be a game changer, quite honestly, with how government's going to be done. I, I will tell you, I'm probably more in the camp of, I think people will see in the long term that um, there's a tremendous value of, of working together in person, and that'll have to be a middle ground somewhere. But I think for the safety of people and then DHS, we have a significant amount of focus on trying to make sure that our workforce feels safe. Uh, so we're definitely not pressing people to come in. But the one thing that we are doing is making sure if you do come in, the buildings are safe. We have protocols, all of that. But um, you're going to see a tremendous opportunity for cost structuring, I think, uh, across the government. And I'm seeing it dramatically within Homeland Security. And it's fascinating because, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, you actually just talked about the unified view of investments as a, the dashboard itself. And I'd like to take from there, go a little bit uh, deeper into using data to drive decision making. And, and what are you doing to sort of transform the way finance and budget is done at DHS to make it more of an analytic uh, kind of agile process and experience? Um, I, I would break that up into a couple different categories. So, um, you know, we, we talked at the beginning of the interview about maintaining the train schedule, you know, the, and trying to keep things on track. Well, to keep things on track, I uh, need a lot of approvals from a lot of important people. And, uh, you know, it's simple things like document uh, approval, workflow is there's significant opportunity. You know, most of the stuff, you know, back in the day, you would get a piece of paper routed through for tons of signatures. It would take a tremendous amount of time, but it was um, statutory really important to have those signatures and have it up to date. And now within 
six hours, you can have something routed across CBP, CFO, management, and have this, the secretary, if it's a priority enough, um, to put their electronic signature on something, and it gets it in and out, and, and that cuts down the administrative side. So within you know, CFO, we wouldn't need as many folks focusing on that. You know, we would be able to, to move those people into more financial uh, and analytical things and to kind of follow the administration side. I think when you get to process outside of administration, you know, I gave you an example of RPA and some of these process automations. And so if you look at DHS, just to give you a couple examples, I've been spending a lot of time in our FPS or Federal Protective Service group. They're the ones that do the guardings of the courthouses, all the federal buildings. Their business model is they basically have a set workforce that's fed people, and then they outsource security to security firms. Those security firms bill the federal government, and then the federal government, us, FPS, takes those, and we have to bill all of those uh, buildings, locations, or organizations, sometimes at a high level, sometimes at low levels. Tremendous amount of processing that takes place, much of it manual. So you look at um, how could you automate that, and how much money could you save in running a business that was really able to do that level of process automation. CIS through this process, um, they've looked at uh, workflow. You know, we when we started having challenges with what are we going to do because of the uh, potential for furlough, their leadership was unbelievable. And I mean, and, but what we found out is that you know, just clips for folders because everything was paper. I would, we were able to save $250,000 just on paper clips. And you know, so it, things in small moves of starting eventually you start adding all of those up. So an example I would give you from a CIS perspective is they had all these offices, 88 offices across the nation. Um, let's say they had an office in Seattle that was doing a lot of naturalization work there, and they have an office in Cleveland. Um, Seattle would get a lot of the Far East activity, and there would be a lot of activity there. But do, how would you utilize the people across all the organizations? Well, the file folder would have to be mailed if you wanted to have somebody else do it because you needed the actual file. Um, eventually, they'll be able to do all this electronically and distribute to work to who's available. Not you know, so that office may be slammed, but people across the nation aren't slammed. And then, what is the right workforce now to have in a shared view? And I just thought at CIS, I was just very impressed by their leadership and uh, Mr. Edlo and uh, that that leadership group over there and some of the stuff. And you know, and and again, COVID's forced that faster because they were already doing stuff. I, I give them credit for that, but. When it's a little bit different when the bridge is burning behind you and you have to go do stuff. The creative edge, too. You're 100% right. So, Troy, what do you think the private sector can do better to improve the efficiency and effectiveness of government's financial management? You know, it, it's, it's interesting because being in the private sector, I, I was in nine different industries. You know, obviously, I did public and government sector portion of that. But I've done entertainment. I've done high-tech, automotive, a lot of different areas. Um, and what I've noticed there is that within the private sector, the base of consulting services that actually provide services to those sectors um, kind of split up between the people that service federal government and the people that do all other. And when I first got into this job, I called up a, a, a strategy group and I, I'm like, I would really like to find out, you know, what you guys do across the organizations um, within the federal government. And a lot of times what I found is that there was just this very bright line between 
in a lot of service providers between, hey, we're fed or we're commercial. And um, sometimes you see people that might have done some work back and forth, but the product or the service really hadn't been refined. So what I, what I see is um, there's a lot of commercial capabilities that are out there and case studies that are very applicable to the federal government that don't necessarily kind of work their way over and vice versa. So I, I look at the way that, um, you know, the services industry, because the service becomes kind of the translator between both industries. And if I think that we would get a little bit more parity and faster, I feel that in in the federal side, I know you asked what can the commercial or the private sector learn, but, you know, it's interesting is in the private sector, cost and profit drive finding solutions before you can really kind of get to, you know, exactly what it is. and. On the federal side, what I see is a lot of times the the view is that they wait for somebody else to figure, you know, how do they do it? How or has that been done? And then they maybe even kill it in the cradle because it just hasn't been done. Um, where I think if they kind of open the aperture, we'd see some of the stuff that's happened in the commercial world and say, no, it's been done. And you know, it was a call center. Well, the call center here is very similar to a call center there, or the financial services shared services center, very similar. Um, an invoice is an invoice. And so I, I think that uh, finding some way to kind of get cross industry, and I mean, all industry and federal government together a little bit closer would be, I think, a significant help to both sides. You know, not to put you on the spot, but you did mention that one of your mission uh, focus areas is to get out there, to tell the story of DHS, to tell all the good things that are happening uh, around financial management, beyond financial management. So it, it, what are some of the key takeaways you would like our audience to to take from this interview? Um, the, the one thing I would say is that um, DHS specifically, which is where my experience is, is that um, I think that is a very great place to work with really unbelievably uh, professional people. And um, I think that, you know, I have, a, I have a son that just graduated from the University of Indiana and uh, Kelly Business School. And I remember people coming on campus to kind of look at recruiting. And obviously, you know, you get the normal private industry people out there, but not a lot of federal government folks. And it seems like the federal government folks, a lot of them come from the Beltway. So it's almost kind of an insider recruiting game. But I, I think that, you know, what I see in the level of process discipline and and not ad nauseum, but just the maturity and process. Um, I think that uh, when you see that and you see the types of people that are working there, you you know, if you did ever take a, a path into working in the federal government, you'd really get a tremendous amount of opportunity to see things done on a very large scale. In corporate, uh, things are much more focused and broken up into chunks. Um, you know, you, even within a big Fortune 500 company, you could have, you know, four to eight companies kind of within that company. And um, simple stuff like transaction processing, that is a given, consolidated. It's not our core area of expertise. Um, but in the federal government, I think that there's just a tremendous amount of, you know, like we talked about, you make a decision that could affect 253,000 people. You get it wrong, you know, you really kind of have to think through it, and but fairly quickly. And I think that's a great skill. Um, the other thing that I would say is that uh, kind of coming into the federal government is that um, the leadership, um, I noticed that uh, when I was in the Navy and I got out way back in the day and I went to work in aerospace, a lot of the aerospace workers, I was in the military side of aerospace, was ex-generals and people that had, had great career paths. Um, I find the executive leadership in that very similar to the way I find it here, which is um, people 
when they say something, they actually mean it. They live up to their word. Uh, they're not that that isn't how it is in private industry, but I think that, um, that, that when they say, "Hey, they care about your family," they actually really care. Uh, it, it seems like a much more um, kind of a family-oriented big business. And so, you know, I, I've got in. I know for me, I felt very welcomed into the community. Uh, I, I think that, um, you know, I would just say that people that are considering doing something and making a transition, I tr and I truly look at this as public service. You know, and I think that if you look at it like that, it's, um, you know, people, if you're motivated uh, money-wise, I, I don't know if that's what people are motivated. You know, I kind of went that way first and then kind of came over. Uh, but I feel like uh, just a tremendous honor to be able to serve. I almost feel like it's a second tour in military that I'm doing something for the country that means something. That's great. So, Troy, I really want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule today. But more importantly, I want to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed the show. Thank you. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Troy Edgar, Chief Financial Officer at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.